welcome to the Public Health Insight Podcast. We'll be engaging in an interactive discussion of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. My name is Gordon, and I'm joined by two of my friends. LaShawn. Sully. And a special guest who will be introduced later. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. There's a growing concern that frontline healthcare workers from all disciplines in hospitals and other care settings are not being provided with the tools to ensure their safety. An article by Vox titled, Doctors and Nurses Are Risking Their Mental Health for Us, outlines some of the short and long-term negative consequences from working regularly in extremely stressful environments. This was based on a study published in the journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, that found that healthcare workers in China, the first country to be hit with COVID-19, are experiencing many psychological impacts, such as anxiety and depression. These psychological impacts can range from the stress of needing to physically isolate from their social support networks, to witnessing firsthand the death toll hitting new highs every day with no end in sight. In the aftermath of COVID-19, there will need to be interventions to address the short and long-term psychological damage. On that basis, we'd like to welcome our first ever guest to the Public Health Insight podcast. In 1993, he graduated from the University of the West Indies in Jamaica, after which he worked as a primary care physician for the Ministry of Health. Since 2005, he's been a general practitioner for the Cayman Islands Health Services. He's now the deputy head of the general practice department with a professional passion for men's health issues. But most importantly, he's a self-proclaimed music and rum enthusiast, a father of five, of which I am one. So with that, I would like to welcome to the show, my dad, Dr. Orette Dane. Uh, thank you, Gordon. Uh, at one moment, I was wondering who this person was. <laughs> but it's good, to, it's good to be with you guys, and I'm honored to be your guest. Well, that, that's what you get when you send me your bio in your handwriting, your doctor handwriting, and send me a picture of <laughs> WhatsApp. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the topic of today is we just wanted to um, talk about uh, continuing our COVID-19 discussions on vulnerable populations. And we there's been a lot of talk lately about um, a set of... Uh, a group of people who you wouldn't necessarily think are vulnerable to disease at this point. And we have to talk about our healthcare workers. Uh, lately, we we're seeing that healthcare workers with social distancing measures are now being overrepresented in the number of cases in pretty much all countries at this point because of the lack of uh, personal protective equipment. Um, so Dr. Thane, I don't know if, if, if you could share some of your insights on that. Okay. Um, well, with the onset of COVID, um, we as healthcare workers are naturally at the front of everything. And uh, we are soldiers. I guess nobody talks about soldiering more than us at the moment. Right. Uh, we will go out, we will fight. And... Um, what we are asking for is the tools to do our jobs. Right. And the tools are truth, 
and the tools truth as soon as we know it let me state that because some things are some things develop over time and we may not know everything at the same time right right but with this covid that's coming uh initially we had some information about one set of persons who were at risk right. then as the information developed then we hear other things in terms of how it's transmitted so there is a kind of uncertainty that's out there which makes us a little bit fearful generally even though we know we must do our job right so i'm wondering with that would it initially there was some caution i guess around people even regular civilians needing to wear things like masks because in other infectious diseases it may or may not have been as effective as measures measures like social distancing for example so why do you think it's a case where when we have a naive disease that's introduced to a population that we don't treat it as if it's possibly the worst disease that can wipe out uh, the human population why why wouldn't we go why why is it a more multiphasic approach where we go okay you don't need to wear masks okay maybe you can wear um uh, homemade masks okay maybe you can wear surgical masks why why don't we start with that most hyper vigilant way to protect people instead of going the other way well well that's one way to look at it which is going hyper vigilant but then it's a matter of resources and um and scale mm. uh we are scientists right. and so we try our best to understand what's happening and it is a fact as you study something you get more and more information coming out um what we want is really the information in a timely fashion um just to get back onto about what you asked gordon um some conditions are spread by specific means and if we go looking at all means and making protections for all means um like i said that may not be cost effective it may leads to to overreaction Mm-hmm. and so we look for similarities with um previous previous types of um organism that behaves that way and as soon as we learn new things then right. we add it right so so dr thane uh, based on your experience maybe dealing with um other infectious diseases do you see any similarities or any major differences with the response for this covid-19 well the covid-19 or coronavirus um we have a template for it because we had the sars um in the early 2000 and um we sort of used that initially as how we would um tell our response um as we're learning new things there's still a dispute as to whether it's aerosol or droplet but as we're learning new things then we um modify the approaches and make it a little different from what we had previously so I'm wondering this brings me to the question now um testing it, the case I guess you can correct me if I'm wrong the case definition was the person displaying symptoms who've had who has had a recent travel history to China that was the original case definition so testing I'm assuming in those cases would have been prioritized to those people who were more likely to potentially get sick from the disease compared to someone with no travel history. So I'm wondering now that we know that the rates are going up for healthcare workers is is that something that needs to be scaled up for healthcare workers the testing. 
I think we should have gotten there a, a long time ago. Um, from the figures we're having coming out of China, where um, a lot of healthcare workers have been succumbing to their illnesses, um, testing should be a priority for healthcare workers for two reasons I'll, I'll, I'll state. One, you want to protect your healthcare worker. Um, there are many analogies about this being a war, and if your soldiers all fall down, then the war the war ends, and we can just imagine who the victor is. Secondly, if your healthcare workers are infected, then your healthcare workers are going to be the vectors for transmitting this condition to the persons they're trying to um to protect. Mm. So um, testing of healthcare workers are is indeed a priority in my in my mind. So recently, I guess in Canada, there has been outbreaks in long term care facilities, and of course, there's vulnerable elderly populations that are disproportionately getting affected by COVID nineteen, and in many cases, they are succumbing to the disease. Um, is this, have you experienced anything similar, I guess, in your jurisdiction where these elderly populations are being affected by COVID-19? Okay. Uh, fortunately, in our, our jurisdiction, uh, we have not had that experience, uh, and thankfully so. And we're trying our best in terms of um, restricting travelers, as well as um, restricting movement within the country, social distancing, to curtail that spread. And where I am, there are strict rules in place for persons interfacing with persons who are in care facilities, um, retirement homes, elderly. And um, it's actually quite a strict routine before one can get to visit those areas. Right. Right. So right. I'm, w- I'm wondering... Um, I'm amazed that, you know, for example, North America, um, so Canada and the United States, um, you know, compared to countries in Europe and Asia, had more time to prepare for the outbreak, right? And if we knew from China's data that the the mortality rate for people who are 60, 70 and over was up to 15 to 20 times higher than than the younger people, why wasn't more done? And I know you could probably just speak to this from your perspective of you know watching the news and seeing how things unfold. Why wasn't? Why don't you think more was done to kind of secure these long term homes? Because we know essentially, you know, if some if a healthcare worker or a resident is affected, it can spread like wildfire. So I'm just amazed that we're still having new outbreaks in long term care homes for a virus that we um, that kind of started to spread from December and January. And we're now in April and we're getting new outbreaks in long-term long-term care homes. Uh, for personally, I think we've been caught napping. And um, for that, I, I will probably ascribe some blame to our neighbors in North America. The entire hemisphere takes its cue from what happens usually in the U.S. If the U.S. is vigilant about something, we tend to pay attention to it. If they're not, um, then the urgency seems to be a little bit less. So I think the stance that was taken initially in dealing with it from the 
point of view of the United States sort of set the tone for the rest of um, the countries in the region. And so we're playing catch up. Some of us are catching up a little bit better than others, but by and large, we're playing catch up. Right. Uh, speaking to that, with, with the lack of life-saving healthcare resources, as like many preventable deaths are occurring simply because there's not enough space. So from your experience, I'm wondering what toll does it uh, does this take on decision makers in healthcare? Uh, it's a it's a huge toll. Um, remember, we've been trained, we've been swore to an oath to do no harm. Also, we try our best to see that no harm is done. When you have patients of the volume that they're coming in, and um, I'm speaking of what we see going on globally. Uh, it's difficult as someone who tend to life to see so much death right. happening around you. And it wears you down. Yeah. Right. It right. does wear you down. So, yeah. So you had mentioned, you know, them um, experiencing, you know, so many deaths over a short period of time. Um, even though I'm, I'm doctors, you know, can experience this in everyday work, but maybe not to the same scale. So I was wondering, um, you know, I was re doing some reading and I, there's a study that was published that said um, there is some long-lasting psychological effects after SARS, um, such as PTSD. So I was wondering if th that's something that you maybe foreshadow into the future happening again. And considering this, this, is, this has been more devastating than SARS, I can, can only imagine the toll it's going to have on the healthcare workers. It, we're already seeing the toll. Uh, if you look at the reports and the um, and the accounts that the healthcare workers are giving, um, it's it's classic textbook. Healthcare workers are anxious. They're afraid. They're not sleeping. Um, there's that feeling of uh, almost a feeling of impending doom. And to speak for myself, I've not been inundated with the actual events that's happening around these people every day. Yet I sit in anticipation because it can happen in my area, right? Fortunately, we have not seen the outbreaks yet, but it's something that we have to be prepared for. And I, I feel for my colleagues when they are inundated like that, not sure if they themselves will be exposed, not sure if they will expose their family, and um, one can easily see all kinds of psychological issues developing, not just in the future, but now. Okay, yeah, so uh, just to expand a little bit on the, the recent study from, uh, I think the study had almost 1,300 um, healthcare workers that worked in China. And the, the, the findings were that um, three in four um, healthcare workers uh, that were directly involved with the COVID-19 response were experiencing psychological uh, trauma to some degree and that they were also 60% um, 60, 60 more likely to experience um, uh, things like depression and anxiety compared to people who aren't involved in the healthcare response. So that's just this is this is something that has been researched already and that was just in the context of China. So if we expand that to 
the global context, we can probably expect to see hundreds of thousands of um, healthcare workers uh, across the world who will need some form of uh, mental health support um, as we we work our way through um, this healthcare crisis. And if I may interject, remember the healthcare worker is assaulted on every front. Um, the obvious one is being there in the um, emergency wing, being there on the wards, dealing with these patients. Also having um, healthcare workers being concerned about their families. Sometimes they have to isolate to protect their families. And then there's added concern because um, not everyone may have support structure for the families they leave behind. And so it, it can be a tough decision, um, as if that's not enough. When there is a need to actually quarantine the healthcare worker, that brings even added, um, added issues. There was one study from the SARS epidemic um, in the early 2000s that had looked at um, healthcare workers who had gone through quarantine. Mm. And they found that quite a few of them had acute stress disorders, depression, alcohol, and other drug addictions. So it, it continues to, to, to assault the healthcare worker on every front. And, and I think we really need to put things in place to deal with the immediate needs of the healthcare worker as well as plan for the long-term needs. So I think a lot of the responses um, coming globally, or especially in the U.S. and Canada, they're very much weighing a couple of options for example they want to make sure the health of the population is optimal and making sure everyone's healthy and protected but at the same time they're also concerned about the economy so how what's your view on that how do you balance that appropriately uh you can resurrect an economy you can't resurrect a person Right. right. In the article, it mentioned there weren't enough infectious disease specialists to take care of all the COVID-19 patients. As a result, they trained doctors in other fields such as uh, ophthalmology and dermatology to help take care of these patients. Uh, what do you think about this unique situation? Because of our um, expertise, we're trainable. Right. So your basic... Um, your basic expertise allow you, and like anywhere else, if you're taking on a new job, you have a period of apprenticeship. Right. Depending on your skill set, your apprenticeship may be longer or shorter. Right. So we have healthcare practitioners who have already been exposed to these areas right. during their training, during their residency. Okay. And so having them through a short orientation um, is usually good enough to get them deployed in any area. Right. Just to, just to piggyback off that then, um, in I think it's Norway or another European country, there, um, as everyone knows, there's a lot of job loss happening. And um, in this case in particular, there are some um, flight attendants that were laid off by this airline that are now being retrained to go directly into the front lines. And I'm almost wondering then, you know, if if in their in their situation where they maybe like you mentioned, 
the transferability of skills for other medical professions might be that might be less of a learning curve uh in that case however for 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 flight flight attendants you would expect it you know um we know that they they're trained for emergency evacuations for things like if the plane goes down and stuff like that but i don't think they're trained or have the the maybe the capacity in some cases that uh healthcare workers have to maybe accept losses of lives on such such a scale so i don't know if you can comment on that before we get even to loss of life mm. if you you can palpate the anxiety you can palpate the worry it's as if a cloud has descended mm. over all of us and um these flight attendants are usually skilled at calming persons right skilled at taking control of um sudden changes right. and uh, it's a highly valuable skill in terms of um assuring reassuring mm. persons who may be anxious in a chaotic situation mm. so while we're not uh, having them being healthcare workers but the psychological impact often will require a voice of calm a steady voice something that can lead persons who are panicking and so that's a skill from that field unless i don't know enough about what they do but i think that's something that you know in the right situation and the right um training coaching can be transferable and they can be very effective at it so in in light of in in light of all the great information that you've shared i'm almost wondering um under normal circumstances what measures are in place to support um the 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 needs or the mental health care needs of um essential healthcare workers who are working in the field so for example under nor- normal circumstances where you wouldn't have mass casualties on this scale um what types of supports are already in place and maybe how much more do those need to be scaled up generally there's usually counseling psychiatric and psychological support available um what we need particularly at this time is in addition to being available to be easily accessible mm. right um persons should should be able to if um once the need arises they should be able to access you know right. some kind of support and and to be fair many jurisdictions many systems hospital systems healthcare systems are putting things in place mm-hmm. um uh, some of it albeit a little slowly but you do see some places providing alternative accommodation for staff who may not be able to um self isolate within their home without right. putting other family members at risk um we see um additional psycholo- psychological support being um being given uh it's still while it's laudable uh we still have situations that that, that can overcome yeah just in general in the healthcare field do you find there to be kind of mental health stigma or a barrier to seeking help as like a health professional <laughs> definitely 
Definitely. And if you look at a lot of healthcare systems, you'll find that persons who require psychological or psychiatric support will often access it outside of that network. So there is that stigma, just like it exists in the normal population, it does exist within healthcare. And that may be a barrier sometimes to accessing, to accessing care. Um, It's something that we really need to find a way to overcome or to minimize the stigma that may come with it. Um, Thank you guys. Uh, That was a great discussion. We'll end it there. We'd like to thank my dad, father, brother, big brother, fun guy, friend, Dr. Thane. Thank you, Dr. Thane. For joining us in this discussion. And um, we hope that um, people will take this more seriously because their decisions and actions influences the health and well-being of our healthcare workers who also have families at home. Thank you for having me on your program. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. In this episode, we discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic presents two opposing realities for members in our society. On one hand, everyday civilians are asked to execute a simple but necessary task of staying at home and social distancing, while frontline healthcare workers are asked to make much more difficult decisions, knowingly endangering the lives of themselves and their families to save many more. Often, without the necessary armor and weapons to defend against this virus. In anticipation of the future long-term consequences, we must act now to advocate for the appropriate mental health support for those on the front lines of the COVID-19 war zone, because there will come a time when they will need our help and we must be there to return the favor. Thanks for listening. Remember, Public health is a field of inquiry and an arena for action to improve lives one population at a time. This has been the Public Health Insight Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please drop us a like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. You can also send us your questions, comments, and suggestions for discussion topics at thepublichealthinsight.gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.